Euzu billahi mineşşeytanirracim. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Elhamdülillahi rabbil alamin. Vessalatu vesselamu ala seyidina Muhammedin ve ala alihi ve sahbihi ecmaîn. Allahumme allimna ma yanfa'una ve anfa'na bima 'allamtana ve zidna ilmen nafi'ah. Allahumme erinel hakka hakkan ve erzukna ittiba'ah ve erinel batıla batılan ve erzukna ictinabe. Rabbi şrahli sadri ve yessirli emri ve hlul uqdeten min lisani yefkahu qavli. Esselamu aleykum ve rahmetullahi ve barakatuh. Welcome to the Reflections on the Risale-i Nur by Bediüzzaman Said Nursi podcast series. This is Mustafa Tuna. You can listen to the episodes of this series wherever you listen to your podcasts or at the website www.reflections-rn.org. And alhamdulillah now we are posting our uh, recordings in, in video format on YouTube too. Uh, you can, instead of listening on podcasts, you can watch it on uh, YouTube. And to do that, you can go to the same website and you will find a link to the YouTube video version of the podcast too. Uh, our YouTube channel is Reflections RN, so it would be great if you can subscribe to it. And also it would be great if you can subscribe to the podcast so that whenever uh, episodes are posted, you can access them on a regular basis, inshallah. <clears throat> so we will continue talking about Ustad Bil Zaman Said Nursi's uh, life in this episode. Uh, those who have been following this podcast, of course, know that we have <clears throat> covered quite a quite a way, uh, read quite a um, section from the words one of Bedouz Zaman Said Nursi's most important works, and we will go back to it, inshallah, once we are um, done with the. Uh, with the biography and also once we talk a bit more about the Risale-i-Nur, I wanted to do this so that uh, this introduction would be available on uh, YouTube or in video format too. So now inshallah we will go back uh, to where we left and continue talking about Ustad Bediou Zaman Said Nursi's life. In the last episode we had um, talked about how Ustad Nursi was taken a prisoner of war and taken to Russia, I had stayed there close to two years, 1916 until end of uh, 1916, 17, 1918 in this, in this period. And how a period of spiritual awakening characterized his stay in Russia and how this continued after he uh, took advantage of the Bolshevik Revolution and escaped from Russia and came to Istanbul and was welcomed as a war hero and an erudite scholar appointed to the Darul Hikmatul Islamiyah, an institute that the Ottoman government had established recently in order to find solutions to pressing problems of Islam at the time. And he had a a comfortable, enjoyable life in this period, uh, but then he sees you know a few white pieces of beard on his on his uh, face, and the reality of death dawns dawns on him one more time with more force, 
and he goes back to this period of spiritual awakening. In a sense, this is his suluk, this is his, his wayfaring uh, in the spiritual realm. This is his period of Gnostic uh, realization. And he seems to have come out of that, that period as a new person. He refers to himself after this period as the new Said. And this also corresponds to a very <clears throat> troublesome time in the history of the Ottoman Empire, uh, though the very end of the Ottoman Empire, uh, it is defeated. Uh, the British occupy Istanbul and Stadnusi is in Istanbul. <clears throat> As he is going through his wayfaring, he is also continuing his jihad he is also continuing his struggle by publication and with his oratory, oratory uh, skills uh, to keep up the spirit of resistance in Istanbul. So that's more or less where we left, inshallah. We will continue uh, from there. Let's read what we have and then we will talk about it, inshallah. Nonetheless, right, he, um, he is going through his spiritual awakening and um, he withdraws from society to a large extent once again in his life at this time. But nonetheless, the world would not leave Ustad Nursi alone yet. Shortly after his arrival in Istanbul, the Ottoman Empire accepts defeat in World War I and collapses. Then, Allied forces occupy Istanbul. It's the British that occupy Istanbul. Allied forces occupy uh, yeah, the entire Ottoman Empire, except for a small region in central Anatolia, and the, especially the Greeks are invading Anatolia too. A resistance movement emerges in Anatolia around what comes to be known as the Grand National Assembly, which convenes in the city of Ankara in 1920. And Ustad is still in Istanbul. Then, upon the invitation of this assembly, Nursi travels to Ankara with the intention to support the resistance, right? So um, he is well known. He is well known from the period of, uh, you know, following the 1908 Young Turk Revolution. Uh, he was a very active figure at the time, going around the empire, publishing. Uh, and then he is well known as a war hero. He organized a voluntary regiment in Eastern Anatolia, resisted the, the, the advancing Russian forces. He has friends in the resistance movement in Ankara. They keep sending him invitation. They keep sending him invitations, telegrams. You know, come here, join us. And he says, Istanbul is the center of the empire. Istanbul is where the the, the most intense uh, struggle is uh, taking place. The, it's the British who led the war, World War One. It's the British who occupied Istanbul. I want to stay at the uh, at the uh, front, right at the furthest point of the front. So he's he stays in Istanbul for a, quite a time, but then he also recognizes that um, the resistance movement has advanced quite a bit, and the central power is shifting. That that means the center of the struggle is shifting. Uh, so he agrees, and he goes to Ankara. He, he has been supporting resistance from Ankara, right? He has been supporting resistance against occupation 
in general, keeping the spirit up in Istanbul, keeping the uh, spirit up all around the country through his publication and through the fatwas he gives in support of the residence movement in this uh, period. So finally, he accepts the invitation of Ankara too and goes there. Um, however, he soon notices when, when he goes there that Ankara, uh, that, that leaders of the resistance movement actually wanted to do away with religion in the new political situation that they were fighting to establish. So he's a, he has a sharp mind, right? He can read things very um, quickly and deeply. And he goes there and there are really good people there that some of him, whom are his friends, uh, who are there with really beautiful intentions uh, to save the whatever can be saved from the empire, to preserve the caliphate, and so on and so forth. But then there is a leadership that has coalesced around Mustafa Kemal who want a new life, who want a new paradigm. And in that paradigm, they don't, they don't have room for the caliphate, they don't have room for religion more broadly. They are after a positivist, materialist, scientist paradigm. And he recognizes this. He sees them. Um, plus, he also recognizes that the success that the resistance movement has uh, accomplished in the resistance, because they, 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 they had, by this point, they had chased the Greeks out of Anatolia, the invading Greeks out of Anatolia, and the Allied forces had started to recognize them as the representatives of the Ottoman Empire. So the success that they have accomplished in the, in the few years has also given them enormous credit and charisma, which now they are willing to use to uh, further their in intents of doing away with religion. So he sees this. And he wants to intervene. He wants to uh, move this leadership back to um, their roots. So he uh, writes a letter to the assembly. He first uh, contacts Mustafa Kemal individually himself and writes to him a letter saying, look, you have accomplished really important things, beautiful things. Uh, and this is great service to Islam. Now you need to crown that service by actually practicing Islam. Praying five times a day, especially praying five times a day, because he notices that many of the, uh, the members of the Grand National Assembly in Ankara are not praying. But that falls on deaf, deaf ears. So when the individual letter does not yield any consequence, he then writes an open letter and shares it with the uh, members of the assembly. And these are good people. These are still um, you know, products of the Ottoman uh, state. So upwards of 60 people start praying five times a day uh, after his intervention, when they uh, hear his oration and speeches and see his letter, read his letter. But Mustafa Kemal does not like this. Mustafa Kemal thinks of this as you know, unnecessary uh, separation within the ranks, if you will. 
you know, he's not going to pray and his cohort is not going to pray. And then there are all these people who are praying five times a day. So there is quite a bit of back and forth between the two. And in the end, Ustad Nursi, with some inspiration from several prophetic tradition, recognizes that these are times of tremendous changes and the forces that are um, that that are active here that are in charge here are forces that cannot be fought with uh, worldly means politics want to um, in fighting is something that he will not accept and yeah it is something that will do nothing but more damage by making Muslims fight Muslims because not everybody can see the inner reality of what is going on. Uh, so he decides or he seems to have decided at this point already that the struggle needs to be moved to a new um, stage, a new layer, a new field. The struggle needs to be moved to the, the realm of thought and heart, the intellect and the heart, to the realm of faith. People's faith is in risk. Uh, and that is what needs to be saved. And that can only be... I mean, and, and you cannot instill faith into people by force. And even if you tried, that's not in your hand. You don't have that force. So... He is still searching. He is still trying to figure out what can be done in response to this. He writes a treatise uh, or, or a brief uh, treatise in Arabic uh, about nature and naturalism, refuting the idea of naturalism. That is, you know, basically materialism, refuting the idea of uh, materialism, the notion that uh, the nature is doing things, uh, thinking of nature as a, an active active agent that does things uh, refuting the notion of uh, coincidence as the source of everything that we ex experience and observe refuting materialist thought in general but that's in arabic it does not uh, circulate much but that indicates to us that you know, he, that indicates to us what he is thinking about Remember, he had resolved uh, to proclaim the eloquence of the Quran, the miraculousness of the Quran, the message of the Quran, right? With eloquence, with, you know, concisely, in a way that would be understood by everybody. He wanted to let everybody know the, the miraculousness of the Quran and the veracity and utility of the message, the benefit of the message that's in the Quran. But that's where he's focusing now. But he recognized that he will not be able to do much in Ankara. Okay. Um, he perceives this development, some of the signs in, in these developments, in these developments, he perceives some of the signs of the end of times. And with guidance from some prophetic traditions that shed light on such period in, in history, he goes back to one. He withdraws from the, the, the ruling society, ruling segments of the society. Again, he goes back to Van, his homelands. Uh, in the years since 
his return from Russia, he had emerged from his long spiritual crisis already with a deeper st state of realization, with a tahqiq, right? And seeing the ugly face of the material world already. So he wants to go back there, withdraw, and avoid all worldly interactions, the fame that follows him all his life, and power politics as a source of much injustice, right? He's again searching. On the one hand, we see that there are these seeds of ideas that are that are sprouting in his mind about how one can struggle with the troubles of this newly dawning uh, time of tribulations. He is writing this treatise, brief treatise on naturalism and so on and so forth. But at the same time, he is also withdrawing and he appears to have also had the idea that this is not something that I can deal with or I want to deal with. I'm going to withdraw and um, save myself and those, you know, few individuals that might somehow come near me. This seems to be the uh, motivation he has in going back to the city of Van. And once he goes there, he teaches for a little uh, while. And then in the end, he's going to withdraw to a cave altogether. There in Van, for a while, he teaches a few students. And with them, as I said, he withdraws and he climbs the mountain and goes, stays at, uh, at, a, at the ruins of a monastery, old monastery. And then when the winter comes, they dig a cave and you know stay there. So he is away from society. He's away from the hustle and bustle of life. But the world, once again, is not going to leave him alone. Around this time, there was a uh, rebellion in Southeast Turkey, 1925. So a couple of years pass uh, after he leaves Ankara. Uh, he leaves Ankara shortly before the declaration of the Republic. And that's the, uh, the official end of the Ottoman Empire. In October 1923, he leaves shortly before that, a couple of years spent in one. Uh, but then there was a rebellion in, uh, in uh, the region. And this is something that's very controversial. Uh, obviously, the government owns the documents, the, the Turkish state at the time owned the documents. We don't know all details of what happened. Uh, it seems to have started as a um, small skirmish between uh, some gendarmerie uh, who wants to basically walk into a wedding and take away uh, one of the guests and the owners of the wedding say, look, you know, we have a wedding here, wait a little bit after the wedding, we are going to you know, uh, turn that person uh, to you. And they say, no, give it now. And, you know, it, the, the situation becomes tense and then they, the gendarmerie uh, takes position to shoot and those in the wedding and in weddings everybody has their uh, rifles and guns because that's part of the wedding ceremony they are going to shoot in the air uh, they shoot back the gendarmerie die and then this um, expands as a rebellion in the region it turns into a rebellion against the secularist moves um, 
anti-religious moves of the government because in 1924 the 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 new Turkish state the ruling elite of the new Turkish state uh, abolished the caliphate they cannot do it with the members of the first national assembly grand national assembly that fought the, the war of resistance they go to elections and they uh, basically concoct a new assembly and this new assembly abolishes the caliphate so this there is a lot of resentment all over the country but especially in these you know kurdish areas because it is religion it is the caliphate that connected that um kept them in the empire to a large extent and that's gone also there were some promises given to uh the people of the region uh during the war of resistance that they would have more independent more autonomy and so on and so forth that is not being materialized uh, so there is a lot of resentment and that explodes as a rebellion now as we said Said Nursi is against any kind of uh, infighting within the Muslim Ummah so they come to him the leaders of the rebellion come to him or send him uh, you know letters messages asking him to support but of course he doesn't uh, you know support the rebellion he tells them look what you are going to do is to make ordinary muslims fight ordinary muslims this is not how we should accomplish things right so he does not support the rebellion he even prevents some clans in one from joining it but once the rebellion is suppressed the authorities in Ankara, the ruling elite of the country, becomes very concerned about you know further, the possibility of further rebellions in the region, and they uh, either execute or exile the notables of the the region. They they basically uh, try to disable the the society in Southeast Anatolia from being able to act on its own volition, right? Because it is notables of a society, the intellectuals, the scholars, the uh, political leaders. And this is a very tribal society. So the tribal sheikhs, the tribal uh, chiefs, they take them all out and exile them from the region. And of course, Bedouz Zaman Said Nursi is such a uh, well-respected person, a person with such charisma in the region that they will not leave him there either. The state authorities fear his reputation and charismatic influence as a scholar of Islam among the region's Kurdish population, and thus they exile him first to Sparta, which is a city in southwest Anatolia, and then to nearby to a nearby mountain village called Barla. So they exile him. Uh, you know, people in the region are very concerned about this, very sad about this. And uh, they come to him several times and say, Look, we have enough. Uh, support uh, among the population of the region just let just give us the permission and we will whisk you away they want to uh, take him away from the gendarmerie and take him to iran from there he can possibly go to one of the you know arabic speaking countries but he says no this is not uh something that 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 we can think of as happening within the realm of causes and effects only this is not only the doing of the ruling elite of the country there is in the intervention of uh, 
uh, divine determination in this. I have a service to, to, to fulfill and that is why I am being taken away. So, or, or this is what he appears to have been thinking at the time. So he just agrees, just agrees. He is taken from the region, uh, shipped to, uh, you know, one place from there, another to place from there, another place, uh, you know, the, the, this is Anatolia at the time and there are no roads, etc. So it takes a long time to go from one place to, to another. But eventually, eventually, he is exiled to the city of Sparta in southwest Anatolia. Um, and then the government becomes concerned about his possible influence there too because he is such a well-known and such an erudite scholar that wherever he goes, people are coming to him and asking him to, to teach us, right? So in the end, they exile him to this place called Barla, a village called Barla. Now, Barla is um, a beautiful place, a beautiful mountain village, but it's a mountain village. To go there, you have to climb the mountain. Uh, at the time, you could either you know, take a jeep or perhaps go on you know, horseback. You have to climb the mountain. And then you come to a lake. You have to cross the lake and there were two boats crisscrossing the lake, two boat owners and two boats crisscrossing the lake, and that's it. You have to find one of them and cross the lake, and then you reach the other end, the other shore, and from there you climb a bit more, and then there you are in Barla. Right? They want to shove him away, put him away uh, so that he would not have access to, you know, basically any human beings. And in that village where he goes, they warn people saying, look, this is a dangerous person, don't interact with him much, leave him alone, so on and so forth. So the authority's choice of Barla as uh, Stad Nursi's place of exile was due to its inaccessibility. However, this remote place of exile serves as the incubator where God puts Stad Nursi in the service of the Quran and religion in his new state of realization. Right, he, Ustad Nursi, went through his wayfaring, completed it, reached a deeper, higher level of realization, um, and that process is quite well documented in brief notes to self that he writes at this time, and that's possible because he was not wayfaring with the heart alone, his intellect, intellect was accompanying his heart as he was wayfaring. Uh, so there are, there are different types of wayfaring for most people because they are moving into a realm, a spiritual realm that does not have any references in the world that, are, that they are familiar uh, with. They cannot proceed that there with the intellect. So they, they leave the intellect behind. It is the heart that proceeds. But Ustad Nursi is not like that. And he's not the only person, uh, you know, for this. Uh, the, the people that I have been referring to as the giants of the tradition, you know, Abdul Qadil Gailani, Mawlana Jalal Rumi, Imam Ghazali, Imam Rabbani, and the companions of the Prophet Sallallahu This is very important, and it, the importance will become more apparent later on as we discuss the matter. They do not leave their intellect behind and traverse the path. 
they move on with the intellect. So you start noticing it moves on with the intellect and the heart together, hand in hand. And because of this, he is able to, you know, the intellect is able to grasp and articulate things uh, through metaphor to the extent that it is possible in these notes to self. And, and the, most of those notes to self are later collated as a book called Mathnavi Nuri. Mathnavi al-Arabi al-Nuri, uh, Arabic Mathnavi in, uh, of uh, the luminous Arabic Mathnavi, something like that. So we know this process and we know that he has come at the end of that process with this higher level of realization. And what seems to be happening is that God is putting Ustad Nursi uh, in a position of service in his new state of realization and his exile to this remote mountain village is an aspect of this process. Those who exile him think that he will be done with, he will be out of the out of sight, and therefore can't be put out of mind. But that does not turn out to be the case. Ustad Nursi refers to himself before his realization as the old Said, and after it as the new Said. Uh, while old Said was a scholar and activist with a sharp intellect and daring character, the new Said that we will now see blossoming, blooming, sprouting, turning into a tree, right? The new Said was a compassionate spiritual teacher who relies on his intimate understanding of the Quran to establish a broad path to God that comprises the essence of all established paths and from which all believers from uninitiated peasants to advanced scholars could benefit. There is a lot packed in this sentence that we just read, right? A, a new uh, path, a new system of thought, a new package of knowledge that will come out of this. In the Risale Inur collection, it is not written yet. The Risale Inur, uh, Ustad Nursi's magnum opus, is not written yet. In it, right, by relying on his intimate understanding of the Quran, receiving inspiration and guidance from the Quran, right, he will establish this new path, which will comprise the essence of all established paths. That is all major uh, Sufi paths and also all major Ahlul Sunnah uh, Orthodox understanding of uh, religion, right? The essence of all of that. What has accumulated over 13 centuries being distilled into pure if you will, uh, nourishment for the soul, nourishment for the spirit, nourishment for the heart, nourishment for the intellect. And something that all believers can benefit. Ustad Nursi's works before this are very erudite and they are written primarily addressing um, intellectuals and scholars of the time except for a few things, right? 
they are written at a very high intellectual level with a very elaborate language with the use of a lot of terminology that those who are experts of the field can understand and will understand but may not be accessible for the uninitiated individual. Ustad Nursi's new works, however, in this period, will be different. They will be accessible to the uninitiated peasants because he is exiled to a mountain village and his primary, right, first and foremost, interlocutors, addressees in this village will be sometimes illiterate peasants. Peasant men, peasant women, peasant children. And there will be a few people who you know, can write in Arabic and you know, know Arabic, memorize the Quran, so on and so forth, so that, that can be considered scholars, but few. Otherwise, the broad population, the broader population that he's addressing here will be uninitiated peasants. And he comes to the conclusion that it is the faith of these broader populations that is under risk in this newly emerging world. Now, the, um, the beauty in this is that while his primary addressee is going to be, well, let's make a correction there. His primary addressee is his own soul, his nafs, his um, evil commanding soul. That's what he says and that's what appears from his, his, his works. Uh, but much of what he writes in the Risale Inur, he has already addressed it to his evil commanding soul in that process of spiritual awakening uh, that is documented in those notes, the self that later became his Mathnavi and Nuri al-Arabi. So now he is articulating them in a new language <clears throat> with the awareness that while he is still addressing them to his soul, otherwise they would not be effective, there are others who are listening. There are, there are others in the audience. He is not alone any, any longer. So he's, he, ha, he, 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 out of this compassion uh, for the, and, and concern for the faith of the broader populations, um, he is articulating them in a more understandable language for these people. But the beauty of, uh, the beauty in all of this is that this does not mean that he is writing simple, um, you know, what, 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 he, what he's producing is simple um, texts of preaching to the broader population and all that's, that's all. No, he's actually coding, I think that might be the right word, coding what he has distilled from the 13 centuries of the tradition in what he is writing too. For those who are aware of the debates, disputes, controversies, <clears throat> or um, great leaps in the tradition, who know the history, who know the terminology, who, who, who know the Quran, who know the prophetic traditions, and so on and so forth, they can go into the Risale Inur, and even though it is written in a form that is accessible to uninitiated peasants, they can see this coded um, knowledge in there as intervening in these debates of the tradition, uh, reviving those great leap forwards in the tradition, uh, 
solving some of the unsolved problems of the uh, tradition, right? So it is a very high level scholarly work too. It has both of these properties in it and everybody according to their level of understanding and preparedness can benefit from it at a higher level or a lower level, but everybody can benefit from it. And if it is an uninitiated peasant who has started this, right, they can progress. They can read it once and understand at the level of uninitiated peasant, but now they have a new level of understanding. They, have, they can read it again and then progress some more and read it again and then progress some more. So many people who became uh, Stadnursi students at the time, right, they might be elementary school graduates, sometimes illiterate, sometimes with some background in scholarship, they become, they become uh, spiritual leaders, intellectual leaders, activists, teachers to the rest of the population in time. So it's a, it's an amazing thing that that's happened, that's going to happen uh, here, but uh, you know, we need to go back to the uh, story, history, the, the uh, biography itself. And then inshallah, we will have uh, an opportunity to talk more about these things later on uh, when we talk about the Risale Inur. More of this will come in the biography too. But this is a, just a brief introduction to what is coming inshallah. One of the indications that this really appears to be a um, divine intervention. Divine intervention really appears to be active here, right? Behind the scene here is that while these people in Barla are uninitiated peasants, some of them turn out to be so sincere believers um, and people prepared, as though people prepared specially to receive Beduzaman Said Nursi here in this village and help him out with the service that he is destined to render for the Ummah. And among them, there are a few who are, you know, going to be <clears throat> people who know Arabic, people who know the Ottoman Turkish, who can write Abedizaman Said Nursi's texts and distribute them, right? So it's as though this place and the mountain village is prepared, waiting for Abedizaman Said Nursi to come uh, so that they, they can help him with his service. The villages of, villagers of Barla recognize the gift of knowledge and light that Ustad Nursi brings to their doorsteps. Slowly, they begin to gather around him. At the beginning, they were warned against this you know, dangerous person coming to their village. But as time passes, they are observing him and they see that this is a sincere believer and scholar. Uh, there's no danger that's going to come from him. And also, and importantly so, if there's any, any danger that's going to come from him, be it so, be it so. The villagers of Barla recognize the gift of knowledge and light that Ustad Nursi brings to their doorsteps. Slowly, they begin to gather around him. 
The Risale Inur initially emerges from Ustad Nursi's teachings to these villagers in the form of brief treatises. However, we should note that it comprises much more than lessons for an uninitiated audience. So we just talked about this. Let's you know, keep reading uh, the text we have too. A careful comparison of Ustad Nursi's previous works, especially from the early 1920s and the Risale Inur. So the uh, previous works primarily refers to these notes to self. And also earlier works, uh, you know, his works on logic, uh, his works on uh, uh, the, the, the Quranic exegesis, right? And his uh, articles written uh, in journals in Istanbul, a careful comparison of his previous works, but especially those notes to self and the Risale Inur, his magnum opus that is going to be uh, produced, written later on, while he's in uh, Barla, reveals that, that comparison reveals that following years of deep reflection upon the Quran and observe the universe, this is going to be very important, right? Ustad Nursi is going to provide us with a side-by-side -side reading of the Quran and observed universe as two forms of revelation, right? The observed universe is a revelation to it is a message to the humanity too because it contains all signs of creation it leads us it points uh, points to the creator right uh, his deep reflection upon the Quran the observed universe as two forms of revelation right following years of doing this Ustad Nursi has already reached the level of realization and illumination that characterizes the Risale Inur so he was prepared for this. The people that received him in Barla were prepared for this. He, has, he had recorded the inspired wisdoms emerging from this reflection in the form of brief notes for himself and published some of them, especially in the early 1920s. Therefore, his, his teachings to Barla's villagers and later to a larger circle of students were not mere inspirations of the moment. Now, this is important to understand. There's a lot of inspiration here. There's a lot of divine guidance here. Uh, when Ustad Nusi dictated the treatises that later enter into the Risale Inur, he would be transformed. Like he, he, he would, for, for instance, in some occasions, he, if they're outside and he would dictate his works, he didn't write them himself. He dictated them to a few you know, uh, students who were able to become scribes for him. If they're outside, he would um, gaze the sky, looking up as though he's reading something from there or as though he's you know, seeing something there and keep dictating and dictating, dictating as though he's speaking. I and mean, if you read the Risale, it's very articulate. If I, if I could possibly write something like that, I would probably write it and then go back and read it and revise it and revise it and revise it. It would take me a month to write, you know, if I could do it, to write any one of those treatises, but it comes in the moment. Uh, you know, even some of the very long treatises, 50 pages, 60 pages, it's as though it's planned, everything is planned, you know, in advance. And it was planned in advance. It was planned uh, when he was writing those notes to self, 
but the whole articulation of it is also as though it's planned. Uh, one of his treatises, the treatise on the sick, he was sick, unconscious, lying down, unconscious. All of a sudden, he comes to himself, he you know, uh, sits up in bed and tells the person next to him, write. He starts writing, writes, writes, writes. He keeps dictating, dictating, dictating. The treatise finishes, he goes back. So there's a lot of inspiration in this, but what we are trying to, to, to emphasize in uh, reading what we are reading here is that it is not mere inspiration. There is preparation. The inspiration comes after preparation. And when it comes, because there, there is preparation, he was able to receive it. Because he was such an erudite scholar who is so intimately familiar with the Quran, so intimately familiar with the prophetic traditions, so intimately familiar with the accomplishments of uh, other scholars before him. He was able to receive that inspiration and articulated it in a way that would be understandable for the rest of us. Right? So his teachings to Barla's villagers and later to a larger circle of students were not mere inspirations of the moment. They contained inspired knowledge which he received due to his decades of intellectual and spiritual preparation. In the persons of his immediate readers, this knowledge addressed the questions and needs of an entire age. Right? It is, say, um, 30, if you expand the circle a bit further than the Barla village, 50, 60. If you expand a little more, say 150 uh, students who are aware of what Ustad Nursi is doing, writing, who become his students, uh, interlocutors at this time. But in the persons of this immediate circle of readers, the knowledge that he is producing in the Rizad Einur addresses the questions and needs of an entire age. And we are still living in that age. Characterized by the ailments of positivism, consumerist materialism, and even militant anti-religious indoctrination. So something special Something tremendous is happening here. One thing we need to keep in mind at this juncture is um, it was not easy for an exiled scholar of Islam like Said Nursi, somebody who is so well known, and because he's so well known, so um, the, the, the government, the uh, the ruling elite of the country, people who are trying to push their way of new, they create a new world, a secular materialist new world, that they are so concerned about him, uh, so well aware and so, uh, you know, their eyes are on him, right? It was not easy for an exiled scholar of Islam to publish his works in early Republican Turkey. He arrives in Barla, uh, 1926, for a couple of years, he appears to be out of sight, but then, uh, you know, the, of course there are spies and there is, uh, you know, government uh, uh, scrutiny going on and people in Ankara learn about him talking to peasants and even writing treatises, starting 1928, right? They put him under close scrutiny and uh, they try to, to, to limit his communication uh, and it's a life of oppression from there on. 
as we will see, he will spend the rest of his life under police scrutiny, in prison, in exile. Uh, they had already tried to poison him back in Ankara when he was briefly in Ankara uh, during that back and forth, that altercation with Mustafa Kemal. They had tried to poison him, it did not work. According to what is recorded by him and his students around him, he was poisoned a total of 19 times in his life. Perhaps he died as a result of one of those uh, poisons. We cannot know exactly. Uh, he died at all older age, uh, but it did not work because he had his service to render, right? He, he, he was not uh, left alone uh, he had a service to render and he was going to render that service. It is God who gives life and takes life. He, he, he didn't take his life even though he was poisoned several times. But it was not easy to do uh, for him to do what he was doing. <clears throat> he is producing, authoring treatises which serve as cures to the, the, the ailments of materialism and materialist consumerism, positivism, uh, even anti-religious propaganda, but, but what he writes needs to be published, publicized. It needs to reach to people so that it can benefit them. And this was not easy. The villagers of Barla hand the copy, his treatises, and secretly, not openly, secretly pass them on to other readers in a gradually growing network of readers and copiers. So he had a few students who were around him all the time and some of them knew how to read and write. When something, an when the inspiration came, he would tell them, write, and they would always have you know, paper and pen ready. They would pull it out and write. And then they would go home and prepare a clean copy. And then they would, you know, somebody else who knew how to read and write would take that and prepare clean copies then for themselves. Now we have three, four copies. So these three, four copies would then start circulating. Others would, you know, copy it. And through the process of copying, they would, the numbers would multiply and it would spread around. Uh, first the villagers of Barla, then to other villages in the vicinity, then to a few individuals who heard about this and became involved in the network in Barla, in Burdur. A growing network of readers and copiers. This went on for almost nine years. So 1926 to 1935. The number of people who secretly but devotedly read and copied Ustad Nursi's treatises in Barla in, in other nearby villages reached thousands. Now at the closer circle, we have 150 or so people, right? But over time, it will reach thousands. In 1935, however, the government clamps down on this network. They are following. In from Ankara, they are following what Vedusaman Said Nursi is doing, and the gendarmerie spies in the in Barla, spies around the vicinity, and the intelligence services are, are informing. And they, they, they finally, in 1935, decide that this has to be stopped. They clamp down on the network. They arrest Nursi, <clears throat> along with several of his closer students. And, and here we have you know, 150 or so as the number. And send them to Eskishehir in central Anatolia to be tried. Like, why Eskishehir? They're in Sparta. 
you know, Ankara is the capital city. Why Eskişehir? There is no logical explanation. It seems they were, they, they perhaps thought that they were better, they could control the judges in Eskişehir uh, more easily. But at any rate, they are sent to Eskişehir to be tried about 150 or so people, Ustad Nursi and his close uh, students, uh, people involved in this uh, process of this industry, if you will, of copying uh, Zaman Said Nursi's uh, treatises and producing the Risale Inur. They are, ex they are uh, arrested and sent to Eskishahir to be tried. <clears throat> the um, problem uh, from the point of view of the government, however, is that they poison him, he doesn't die. They want to produce um, a, a judgment against him. There's no, no law on the books and they, you know, the Turkish state still has a claim to legality. There's no law on the books by which they, they, they can uh, sentence him. Uh, there are laws against Sufi orders. Sufi orders are banned. Practicing Sufism is banned in the country. But Veluzaman Said Nursi is not practicing Sufism. He is not uh, initiating disciples into a Sufi order. Uh, so they cannot find laws. And also, although the ruling elite, the, the small ruling elite, has become religious, the people of the country are still religious. They find themselves being oppressed by the um, shenanigans of this new government. So even the judges in some of the courts, that they even uh, in some cases, um, the directors of prison where Bediz Aman Said Nursi and his companions are imprisoned. They, are, they also don't like what they are doing, but they, they are under command. They cannot do otherwise. So, as a result of this, the court in Eskisheir fails to produce a sentence. But Ustad Nursi was once again ex is, is once again exiled. So he they cannot sentence him. They cannot uh, you know throw a, a sentence on him. But by government decree, they exile him again to another town called Kastamonu because they don't want to send him back to Sparta, back to Barla. There's a network that has grown around him over there. They don't want him to be in that network any longer. They send other people back to Sparta and Barla to their hometown, and they are instructed not to leave. And Bediuzaman Said Nursi is sent to another city, again in central Anatolia, but like north central Anatolia to Kastamonu this time. So what happens? The developments of Barla repeat in Kastamonu. Students gather around Ustad Nursi, and once again, it's as though the people who gather around Said Nursi, Ustad Nursi in Kastamonu, were prepared for the service in advance. They gather around Ustad Nursi again secretly. They read, hand copy, and spread his works. Ustad Nursi keeps in touch with his former students with secret dissent and often hand-delivered letters. So he keeps the network together. He is under police scrutiny, but through a tremendous effort and um, had be right, like taking to the means uh, arrangements. He keeps in touch with that network. He doesn't let that network disintegrate. Then what happens? He's arrested again. 
tried and exiled again, this time to, uh, you know, West Central Anatolia again, to a town called Emirda, a small town. Students, so what happens? Students gather around him again. And all of these students are gathering around him, knowing that this is going to put them in trouble. But the message that is being delivered is so precious that their conscience is, is guiding them to help Bedir Zaman Sahih Norsi. Students gather around him there too, and he keeps writing and teaching. Despite a number of court trials that happened thereafter, detentions, he spends, if I'm not mistaken, close to nine years of this period between 1926 and the end of his life uh, in prison. And there is only one small uh, sentence uh, that is related to a like, trivial incident. And that happens because the judges who are trying them him, him, him there, you know, they're under pressure. They cannot not, not uh, give him any, any sentence. So instead of not giving any sentence, they sentence him for a trivial thing. And because he had already been in prison in detention during the process of the uh, court trial, uh, that, that imprisonment covers the, the, the uh, punishment for this small sentence. So they are able to release him. So except for that, there is no uh, real, actual sentencing uh, crime that is established, right? But one court trial, another, one court trial, another. Detentions, nine years or so in prison. Uh, all of the rest of his, his life in exile. Most of it, except for a few years at the end of his life, under very close uh, police scrutiny. Sometimes the police puts him in one building and, and uh, seals the door. People can't even go into the building. At some point they do this and leave him to, to die in the house out of hunger. Uh, his students uh, gain access to the next building. So there was an attached wall. Gain access to the next building, break the wall and enter and you know, save him basically from, from uh, you know, imminent death as a result of starvation. Uh, there. So court trials, detentions, being poisoned several times, but people gather around him. He keeps, uh, he keeps um, producing this knowledge. And also something we should mention in, on the side, and we will come back to inshallah. He is also maintaining a very rigorous re regime of worship. His nights, he spends nights worshiping. Like he has two hours, maybe three hours of sleep every night, and the rest he gets up and, you know, he has his his litanies, his prayers, his uh, Quran recitation, his tafakkur, his contemplation. Uh, he has a list of uh, sadad, all the descendants of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam who have been of service to the ummah. A huge list, they say. Uh, a, you know, it was written on a uh, a huge paper made up from like other paper taped tape together. The size of it like one meter to five meters. It's about like four feet to uh, 25 feet or so. He's reading them, making a dua for them, uh, you know, sending salutations to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, 
this is his nights and during the day if he is allowed access to his uh, you know uh, students he is teaching them dictating his treatises to them so a blessed life a blessed life that he is living under these dire circumstances and the sincerity that keeps him going under these dire circumstances is the secret of the success that God is bestowing uh, on him in, 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 the, in the form of the influence, in the form of the uh, blessings that, in the form of the effusions, faith, in the form of the effusions that people receive from the work that he is producing at this time. So, while the treatises of the Risaleinur offer a treasure of knowledge and spiritual light and guidance, Ustad Nursi and his students patient struggle and unfavoring perseverance before injustices, slanders, deprivations, imprisonment, psychological pressure, and physical torture in this period provide the foundations of a model of principled action. So there is the knowledge, there is the book, uh, there is you know, the, the effusion that comes from the works that he, he produces at this time, but there is also the, the person of Pedro Zaman Said Norsi, uh, and also the network that grows around him. Right? Their principled action sets a model for those who will come after them and read the Risale-in, read Bedu Zaman Said Nursi's works and find inspiration in this. And you know, one, of the, one of the signs of knowledge is that once a person has that knowledge, and we are talking about divine knowledge here, right? We are not talking about information about the world, but we are talking about knowledge about God, knowledge about hereafter, um, sacred knowledge, right? One of the signs of the sacred knowledge is that one, when one is filled with that, one cannot keep it to himself or herself. Then you, you will find this urge to share it with others in you. And these people who have gathered around Bedouz Said Nursi and who are being filled with the knowledge that is outflowing from his heart and mind are now being filled with this urge to go ahead and share. So a, a model of action is also emerging from this process. This model should be considered a central component of Ustad Nursi's overall teaching too. So it's not only the book, it's also the practice. One learns about it from his correspondence with his students, some of which become a part of his magnum opus, the Risale Inur Collection which are compiled into four volumes in the compendium of the, of the Risale Inur, but there are other letters that have not been published, as well as from the example of the students who personally learn from Ustad Nursi and live a life of service thereafter until the very end of their lives. Many of them uh, passed away. May God have mercy on their souls. There are very few left who have seen Bedouzaman Said Nursi, and when a person passes away, then we can look and see that his life story is sealed and we can look and see if there are any defects, deficiencies, any problems. And the great majority of these students who learned from Bedou Zaman Said Nursi and who were propelled into action by Bedou Zaman Said Nursi, we see that they live peckless lives. 
clean lives, lives of service and worship, lives of sincerity. That in and of itself is a karama, like miracle, or, or it is miraculous. It is extraordinary and inspiring. There is something to be um, heeded, right? There, is, there, there are lessons in this, in this um, story, mashallah. Um, so speaking of these students, some of them become very close to him. Uh, some of them even ha have the opportunity and fortune to live with Ustad Nursi in the same house during the last seven to eight years of his blessed life. How does that happen? He said he's under police scrutiny. They're not letting anybody close to him. He has to communicate with his students secretly. These not networks are, ris are risky things. Well, in 1950, when Ustad Nursi was approximately 72 years old, Turkey's ruling party changes uh, in the country's first democratic, truly democratic election, multi-party, uh, secret ballot, open count election. And you know, this is not a Turkish history of the Tur Republic of Turkey, so that we will not go into too much detail, but this is post-World War II. Uh, Turkey is under pressure from the Soviet Union. The Soviets want a part of Turkish territory, uh, and Turkey therefore is uh, moving closer to Europe and America, NATO countries, and uh, the, the process of democratization is a consequence of uh, this, this, uh, you know, this situation. So there is democratic election and the government changes. The new regime relaxes its grip on religion relatively. Now, close government surveillance on Ustad Nursi continues in this period too, after 1952, but he was allowed to rent a house in his part. He's, he's given the opportunity to, to choose where he's going to live, for instance. So he rents a house in Sparta, settles there with a few of his students, and starts to publish his books in print in time too. Uh, now that, that they had already figured out a, a way to um, copy the books with the spirit print. Uh, you can like think of it as a, a primitive version of uh, the publication technology that comes into the picture later on. But then in the 1950s, they will actually be able to, uh, to print it uh, in the proper way uh, that we know as print today too. Uh, until that point, they published it uh, with the Ottoman script using the old uh, alphabet, but noticing that that has become inaccessible to most people in the country. Ustad Nursi also gives permission for the publication of his books with the Latin script, while some uh, members of the community continue, and even today they continue to hand copy uh, the texts. In a, in a sense, that's another form of service, the service of preserving the the script of the Quran in the in in, in Turkey you know, in other countries say in you know Saudi Arabia I know Tunisia Iraq uh, even Pakistan you know that script is preserved because the, the 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 script that is being used for the language is Arabic script but there are countries including Turkey where it is not 
uh, preserver. So this is another service uh, that Sadi Inur uh, renders the service of preserving the script of the Quran too. But since most people can't read that alphabet any longer in the country, Ustad Nursi gives permission for the publication of his works uh, with the Latin script too. And they do it in the 1950s. Right? So the scrutiny is continuing, but there is some uh, relaxation and they're able to do some of these things. Uh, he stops writing new treatises for the most part in this period and focuses on training his students. So his students are his treatises now and spreading the Risale Inur. His readership grows to hundreds of thousands within a few years. At the end of 1959, he asks his students to take him on a journey through various cities where, where he uh, meets some of his uh, other students. So he's living with, you know, six, seven, eight, whatever uh, students at, you know, six uh, maximum at, a, at any given time uh, in a house in Sparta, he asks them to take him on a journey. And, you know, they also uh, purchase a car at this uh, point. So they, they're on the car, they are traveling through Turkey. Ustad Nursi is visiting his, uh, some of his closer students one by one. This is 1959. Then in March, 1960, when he was seriously ill in the month of Ramadan, he asks to be taken to the city of Urfa in Southeast Anatolia. Now Urfa is a blessed place, uh, a place that hosts the tombs and spiritual stations of several prophets, uh, starting with Ibrahim salam. So the, the Maqam Ibrahim is in Urfa. And they take him to Urfa a few days at the hotel and he passes away shortly after his arrival at our arrival in Urfa at the age of approximately 82. And mashallah, on the 27th night of the month of Ramadan in the Islamic calendar, that is Laylatul Qadr, the night of power, as mentioned in the Quran. He passes away March 23rd, 1960, Ramadan 27. Night of power, Laylatul Qadr. May God have mercy on his soul. When he passes away, uh, they they bury him in Urfa. That's where he passed away. And you know, it seems he sensed that he was going to pass away. He goes to Urfa for this purpose. They bury him at the Dargah Mosque which is believed to have been constructed on the site where Prophet Ibrahim uh, was born. So that's why it's called the Maqam Ibrahim. However, shortly after his death, there was a coup in Turkey. Um, and the, the junta, the military junta that, that takes over the government does not like the relaxation religious relaxation that the earlier regime from the 1950s had introduced in the country. So there is again some clampdown and they fear that that Ustad Nursi's tomb would become a place of gathering for his large following. Now there are like thousands of students, thousands of people reading his works, right? They fear that these people will all flock to Urfa, which partly happens at his funeral. So the secularist military junta unearths, literally unearths his body 
in July 1960 and buries it in an undisclosed location. They possibly take it to the mountains of Sparta. There are some, there is some information that indicates that they, his body was taken to the mountains of Sparta, the city where he was originally exiled. Uh, and Barla is connected to, um, uh, to, to administratively connected to Sparta too. So somewhere over there. But even more interestingly than this, that it was Ustad Nursi's will that his tomb would remain hidden and people would pray for his soul without visiting his tomb. He was concerned that people would come to his tomb and do things, uh, the kinds of things that people sometimes do in, uh, in, 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 in uh, tomb grave visitations that would not be in accordance with the Sharia. Uh, he was concerned about this. He was not against tomb visitations. He did tomb visitations, don't, don't take me wrong, but he was concerned that some people could do some um, inappropriate things. And so he wanted his tomb to be secret, not known. And the junta, without the intention, without actually knowing what they were doing, does fulfill his will. So that's the um, story of Bediuzzaman Said Nursi's life. But we will have some more reflections on that uh, life story, inshallah. We will stop here uh, for this episode. Uh, may God. May God have mercy on his soul and may God uh, help us uh, benefit from his shafa'a uh, intercession, inshallah. Subhanaka la ilma lana illa ma'allamtana innaka anta al-alimul hakim fa-akhir dawahu man alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen al-fatiha.